thankful for is God's grace in my life. Um, there is no shortage of ways and opportunities that, uh, um, you know, you can blow it, right? As a father and husband and pastor, there's a lot of room for challenging circumstances. And, and one of the conversations my wife and I had this week, and, and I was just kind of sharing some stuff, some, you know, some, some stuff that was on my heart, and, and my wife said, thankfully God's mercies are, are made new every morning. And this week, as I kind of took inventory of the things in my life that I'm thankful for, I'm thankful for God's grace in my life. And uh, I don't know what that means for you. you know, maybe it's a, a different challenge or a different area, but um, as we have breath in our lungs and uh, conviction in our heart, I'm reminded that it's never too late to be more like Jesus and less like the person we see in the mirror. So I'm just continue to be uh, just reminded of God's grace in my life. And um, one of the areas that uh, I am reminded over and over is in an area of uh, obedience. And, you know, following Jesus means being obedient even when it's not easy. And we know that following Jesus is, is certainly not easy. And in James, we find our, ourselves in this series where, you know, James, a couple of, you know, the thesis statement from James might be something like, live out your faith. Do what you know. Be simply be doers of God's word and not hearers of God's word. You know, this is a theme that James continues to reiterate to the church and over and over and over. And so, in many ways, it feels like we're kind of the same message every week. And really, it's part of this, these continual reminders that James has for the church to not simply be hearers, but actually live out your faith. And as we look to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community, and we have God's Word before us, we know what the ideal is, but the reality is is that we all fall short of the ideal, right? And so thankfully, in God's grace, that He gives us another chance to do it again, to do it over. Um, just a moment of admission. Um, I used to spend a fair amount of time in the community and on the streets, so to speak, just loving on people. And through the challenges of life and busyness, or call it stress or life or being a father and husband, that's kind of been marginalized in my life. And so I've had to do some, some work this week with the Lord. And Lord, what is this? Have, have, has my love for my brother or sister gone cold? Is that what's happened? What happened? And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage where James, he says, faith without works is dead. That's a strong word. And again, as I wrestled and prayed and thought, and I had to do some inventory and some looking in the mirror and going, wow, faith without works is dead. That's a strong word. But here's the good news. I believe is that God in His grace and His mercy gives us another chance to get it right. So dead is not the end of the story. When we follow Jesus Christ, we know that dead is not the end. That even if we're feeling like our faith has gone cold or our hearts have gone cold a little bit towards people on the margins or maybe the poor or people on outside the church walls, is that dead is not the end of the story. So we're going to look at that this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look at James 2, 14 through 26. James 2, 14 through 26.
Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, and when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You know, like most of us, we've all probably read James or parts of James for most of our lives, I would say, and probably read it many times. And it wasn't until really this series for me personally that I noticed how often James has, again, these continual reminders, and you see these same things, themes kind of coming through James. And right out of the gates in our passage, you know, James uses some pretty familiar language and some very familiar images and a very familiar illustration. And the object of the works, James says, is that James writes about our responsibility to the poor and to those without in our world. Here we are again, and James is saying, there are poor, what are you going to do about it? How do we as God's people help meet the needs and serve those that don't have in our community, is what James is saying. And he says, if you see a brother or sister poorly clothed and without food, it is not simply enough to say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, good luck. And again, so... It is not enough, these are hard words, it is not enough for us, I believe as followers of Jesus, to simply say, go, good luck, I hope you get it figured out. So James is saying there is another response that is required. There is something else. It's not simply a good word of encouragement. There is something beyond Encouragement and kind words is what James says. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to go beyond and move beyond sheer words. James says, don't be fooled into thinking all that is required, again, is just words. Offering a word of encouragement, good luck, hope you get it figured out. And James, actually, the language here is, he says, there's actually no good, there's no inherent good in doing that. There's no profit, there's no honor in simply using words. 
And realistically, we as church and as, as individuals, we cannot meet every need that we come across, right? We can't simply do that. But the question is, what can we do? Uh, I was involved in Salt on the Street in Bellingham years ago. And for me, for that season, that was something that I could do. Um, we know that the Lighthouse Mission in Bellingham, again, is doing some pretty awesome work. I hear them on the radio all the time. Incredible testimonies of, of God's work. That is something else that we can do. We've talked about New Way Ministries, of course. We've talked about the Food Bank um, and Getty Refuge. There are places right here in our community that we're hoping to partner with and putting action to our words. Correct. So, and we know that God can open the ears of the hearer and receive the message of Jesus at any point. That can happen at any point. But it is harder for the ears to hear and the heart to receive Jesus when our stomachs are crying for our basic needs. And in Matthew 25, that's just one of the stories in the Gospels in which um, Jesus says there will be eternal judgment upon those that have no compassion on those in need. And the truth is, no excuse will really stand. When we stand before Jesus, there'll be no excuse. Ah, Jesus, I'm sorry, I was, I was too busy. I didn't see anybody. I just didn't. It was uncomfortable. It wasn't easy. I'm not sure any of those excuses will fly. Now, again, there's a great tension here. We can't meet every need that we see. We can't meet them all. But the question is, what can I do today with what I have? And that is what James is saying. Are you saying... It's not enough to simply offer a good word of encouragement. Hey, God bless you. Go in peace. Good luck. I hope you get it figured out. And verse 17, James says, For those that follow Jesus, and yet there is no fruit, if there is no action, James says, your faith is lifeless. He says it's dead. I couldn't think of a stronger word. And, and, and again, dead is... It's finite. James doesn't say, hey, keep up the good work. You're doing good. He doesn't say, hey, your faith is on life support. He doesn't say, it's almost, there's almost life there. He doesn't say, keep up the good work again. He says, the air has gone out of your faith. He says, the heart of your faith is really stopped beating. Your faith is dead. There isn't a more finite word than that. And the dead that James is speaking about is not just for the works of the poor, but all good works of really any kind. I believe the implication for James is that fruit of any sort. And so the outpouring of having a faith in Jesus Christ is a genuine heartfelt desire to serve, to give, to show the love of Jesus wherever we find ourselves. So why, yes, James is talking about the poor. James is also talking about the fruit of a heart that's been yielded to Jesus Christ. There'll be something there. There'll be evidence there. And those without works, James says, your faith is dead. And in verse 18, uh, James kind of uses this interesting language here and, and almost as if he's kind of listening to this feedback from two different people. And so um, James is kind of writing to a critic a little bit here. And so um, James creates this tension, and, and here's the tension that James was hearing. You had these two camps, and they were one was saying, it's either faith or it's works. Some say it's all about faith. Some say it's all about works. 
Almost as if, again, James was hearing this argument. Maybe he was hearing an argument from God's people in the first century, and they were saying, it's all about faith. And others would go, ah, it's all about works. It's what you do. No, it's who you are. And I get this idea as I read James, that there were those that were talking to James and going, James, this serving business is it's messy business. Meeting the needs of the poor, giving, serving, sacrificing, this is hard. This is messy business. And you'll hear that from people today. If, if you kind of listen close enough, you'll hear them say things like, well, this is just not easy. This is too tough. I don't really want to do this. And again, we know that we will, as humans, seek a place of comfort and ease. We don't have to work hard. We have to work hard to serve and to give and to sacrifice. We don't have to work hard to retreat to a place of easiness and comfort and safety. And you can hear some of the people in the first century going, yeah, yeah, giving, serving, giving to the poor, that's not really my thing. Ooh, I think God's gifted me in some other areas, right? And you'll hear that same thing from, from people in the church from time to time. Yeah, that's... And James says that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And so this, this problem that James is addressing is a tension that I think is still alive today. It's this tension between, is it all about grace? Is it all about works? Great theological divisions and churches have been split over this exact tension. The Bible is clear that you cannot earn your way to Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your salvation. We know that. It's not about good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know that. None of us can earn our way to heaven through good works. There's no act or no good work that we must do to earn God's love. God loves us unconditionally, regardless of what we do. I say amen to that. But this morning, James says, it doesn't stop there. Even Paul says, do we keep on sinning so that God's grace may abound? Do we take advantage of God's grace? But salvation comes, as we know, through confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart by faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, and the Bible says you shall be saved. It's a simple confession of the mouth, so we don't do any good works to get into heaven. We know that. But on the other hand, again, James is saying, this is what we're looking at today, if we have faith, and if there is no fruit, if there's no good, godly fruit from our faith, our faith is lifeless, dead, sobering words. I read, as I read this passage this week, there were some sobering words for me to, to write and, re and read. So both truths are really correct. Salvation is a free gift, grace alone, but good works are supposed to be the product of a life lived with Jesus Christ. There's going to be fruit if we know Jesus. If He is our Lord and Savior, there will be something that comes from that. So, James, James' words are not contradictory. It's not a multiple-choice question where you get to choose, okay, either grace or works, either one. What camp do I belong in? James says, it's both. The Bible reminds us it's both. Again, for followers of Jesus, the fruit of God's grace will be godly activity. They go hand in hand. And there's no way around it. When we stand before Jesus, there'll be no excuse. There'll be no 
loophole. Ah, you know what, serving and giving and sacrificing, that really wasn't my thing, Jesus. I'm sorry. I feel like he gifted me in some other ways, in other regards. I'm more of an intellectual Christian. That's not going to fly. In verse 19, so James says this, that even though even those that stand in opposition to God, even the demons know Jesus on an intellectual level. Satan and his demons never refuted Jesus' existence, right? God's existence. And there's a difference. This reminds me of the difference, the distinction between knowing Jesus and following Jesus. Years ago, I kind of stopped calling myself a Christian. And I'll tell you why. Not that that's not the category I belong in. Just that sometimes Christian isn't quite, that's not quite the descriptor that I want for myself. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's my descriptor. 70% of our country, people in our country, adults, call themselves Christians. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make a judgment on whether they know Jesus or not. That's not my job. But I certainly am skeptical when I look at our country and go, oh, definitely, yeah, 70% of our country are, are followers of Jesus. So even the demons, even Satan recognizes God's existence on an intellectual level. You know, every faith outside of Christianity recognizes Jesus as a, as a good man. We looked at that last week. So our guest speaker last week, you know, she talked about Islam and the understanding of Jesus and the Islam Religion is that he was a teacher, a prophet, a miracle worker. But for the believer, James says, fine, you know of God, but that is obviously not the right answer. And the same answer applies to us. We cannot simply know God intellectually. Again, even the demons, the enemy knows God. You know, I love Jesus' question to both the disciples and Peter. He's in the Gospels, there are three different uh, three Gospel writers talk about and write about Jesus' conversation with both the, the disciples and, and then Peter. And it's the same question that, that Jesus asked the disciples. It's really the same question that he would ask us. Who do you say I am? That's the question we have to ask ourselves every day. Who am I to you? I know what they say. I know what the world says. I know what somebody else says. I know what your neighbor says. Who am I to you? Same question we have to ask ourselves. Who is Jesus to you? If he's just a good man, he's just a prophet, a miracle worker, and Jesus says, again, I know what they say about me. They say I'm a good man. They say I'm maybe John the Baptist or maybe I'm a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah. But Jesus didn't, again, he didn't want the answer of the disciples only. He wanted Peter's answer. Who do you say I am? That's the same thing of us here today. Who is Jesus to you? If we know of Him, that's wonderful. That's a great start. But if He is our Lord and Savior, it's a whole different meaning. If He's your Messiah, if He's your Savior, if He is who He says He is to you, our works of faith, our fruit will be evident There'll be no mistaking it. In verses 20 and 21, 
I'm not going to read it all, but James gets kind of worked up a little bit, I think. And uh, he says this, You foolish people! You need to be shown that faith without works is dead. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you a couple biblical examples. Here's your evidence. It's right there in God's Word. Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, as James wrote to the Jews, I imagine their ears perked up. Yeah, Abraham, we know that guy. You know, and James didn't include Abraham because he was, because Abraham had an intellectual faith or just knew of God from afar or at a distance. You know, Abraham didn't hear from God and go back to his tent or, hey, awesome God, thanks for that word. I'm going to go think and pray and maybe kind of uh, make a, a list of pros and cons, right? Abraham heard from the Lord and he radically acted upon God's word. Abraham was what James called, he was justified. He was not guilty. He was holy before God because he acted on God's commands. He did what God asked of him. He trusted God's promises and it impacted his actions. In Genesis 22, the Bible says that God tested Abraham's faith. We probably all know the story. I've read it many, many times. Take your one and only son, Isaac, whom you love, up to the mountaintop. This was a young man that Abraham loved more than anything. And I will show you, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your one and only son as an offering to me. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about that. I have five kids. I hope the Lord never asked me to make any sort of sacrifice to that degree. I couldn't even imagine. Unimaginable. I don't know what was going through Abraham's head and mind, but he simply did what the Lord asked of him. We know that was a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. Obviously, the Father sacrificed his one and only Son. But, and what can only be God's voice, God's supernatural hand upon Abraham, Abraham agreed to bring his son to the top of the mountain and sacrifice his son Isaac. Okay, God, I'll do what you say. I'm sure it made no sense. I'm sure it was unimaginable pain and turmoil and agony going on in Abraham's heart and his mind. But that's not what we're going to camp on. We're going to camp on this fact that Abraham heard from the Lord and he did what he said. And God wanted to know if Abraham was simply willing. If it meant sacrificing your son, would you be willing to do that, Abraham? And Abraham was. And in a similar way, you know, God, he's not asking for our firstborn sons. He's not asking for our money, our time, our energy. He wants to know if we are simply willing, if we're simply to do what he asks of us. Are you willing to sacrifice and serve to the point that it costs you maybe everything? He doesn't need it, but he wants to know if we're willing to give it up if he asked us. And James says that Abraham's faith was not only active through his works, but interestingly enough, Abraham's faith was completed by his works. It's an interesting term, completed. 
You know, the completion wasn't this. Abraham nodded his head. Hey, sounds good. I'll go through it once. This is my one test. The completion was that over and over and over, Abraham was obedient to God. Abraham did what God asks continually over and over. Abraham was obedient his entire life. And it was credited to him as righteousness and called a friend of God. It wasn't intellectual faith. It was action. It was obedience. Yes, God, I will do what you say, regardless of what it costs. And here we have the evidence of being a mature, faithful follower, a man of God. Again, is that Abraham did what God said, and Scripture says it was completed. His works of faith were the completion. That was the evidence of lifelong obedience was the completion of Abraham's faith. And in the same way, I can't help but read this and go, man, this is the same thing for us here today, of course. So, so in our path, in our test for spiritual maturity, the evidence, are we willing to endure a lifetime of so-called faith and action? Good deeds are part of the completion that James is speaking to. Paul in Philippians 1, he says that he who began a good work in you, in me, will bring to completion all the way to the moment that Jesus returns. So part of our maturity, part of our spiritual progress, again, is evidenced by the work that we do from the time that God calls us to the point that He calls us home. That's part of the completion. Are we going to be obedient over and over, day after day? And the reality is we're going to blow it, right? We're going to miss opportunities to serve. We're going to miss opportunities to, to give. Um, as part of being an imperfect individual. The good news is that that's not the end of the story. Even when we miss an opportunity, even when we don't give, even when we get that prompting and we don't move on that, thankfully, God gives us another opportunity to do it again. I say amen to that. Again, there have been many opportunities that I think I've missed along the way. I'm just, gonna, I'm just being honest with you. To give and to serve. I've taken advantage of a lot of them, but I've missed some. I've walked away from conversations or times or I saw somebody on the corner. Maybe I drove away or walked away and, ooh, there was something right here, a check in my spirit that told me I just missed it. Well, thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? God gives us another opportunity to get it right. And aside from Abraham, you know, James, he writes that Rahab, he uses Rahab as another example of a faithful doer of God's command. So in verse 25, he says, not only Rahab, I mean, she's not only Rahab, but also Rahab as well. Rahab was a Jewish prostitute. She took in the two spies. Joshua sent two spies to spy on Jericho. God's request is that they were going to take Jericho on their way to Canaan. And so Rahab hid the two spies. We'll go back to the book of Joshua to, for a refresher on that. But, but Rahab, she hides these nameless spies, and she says this in the book of Joshua. 
I know the Lord has given you this land. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Words from a Jewish prostitute. Incredible. And Rahab chooses to act upon her confession of faith. Here's this woman that lived really what I would say would be a total contrast to God's commands, receives these men, recognizes they are sent from God in some sort of supernatural conversation and experience, hides these men, saves their lives, and is found to be a woman of great faith. I think she even sneaks into the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Again, if God is willing and can use a prostitute for His purposes, I assume He can use us. He can use anybody. As I mentioned uh, this this week a little bit, I caught myself thinking about this word dead. I'm kind of thinking about it and kind of fixating on it. And I'm like, what does that really mean? And take an inventory of my journey and my life. And where am I? How about an honest assessment of where's my faith? And where are my works attached to that faith? Again, there is no more finite word than dead. That's it. I think we can hear that word and say, oh, well, it's, it's too late, game over, wave the white flag. And the reality is, is if our faith feels dead, I'm going to say that's an opportunity for God to bring it back to life. With God, dead is never the end of the story. In verse 26, the end of our passage, James says, without the Spirit, our bodies are in fact dead. Without Jesus' living water in our hearts, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are indeed, we are dead. Without the one true, again, living water sustaining our lives, we will be dead. There will be no fruit. The book of Ezekiel came to mind this week for me as I was writing and reading and reflecting. Um, God sent his prophet, his spokesman, Ezekiel, to speak life and encouragement to the nation of Israel. You know, God's people uh, were living in captivity to the Babylonians, and everything had been destroyed. Jerusalem, their temple, gone, dead, finished, demolished. They were again living in captivity. Captivity. Everything they saw was death and a dead end. There, there appeared to be no way out. You know, the way they looked, it was ruin. It was destruction. You know, restoration and new life for the nation of Israel seemed impossible. God sent Ezekiel to speak truth and life into God's people. And in uh, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel comes in and, and uh, speaks what's called the Valley of the Dry Bones. And again, Ezekiel 37, he, he speaks to Israel and uses this metaphor and this imagery of dead, dry bones. And then God says, dead and dry is not the end of the story. Behold, I, God, will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And through the power of His Spirit, God breathed new life into the dead, dry bones. And maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. 
And you need to hear that that is not the end of the story. If you feel like you've missed an opportunity, or maybe you've missed opportunity after opportunity to serve or to give, that's okay. Because I believe God's going to give us another opportunity. Even when we've been disobedient, if you feel like you've sinned more times than you'd care to admit, God is still at work and breathing new life into what might feel dead and lifeless. God can restore all things. He can bring back to life the dry bones of your faith. If you feel like your works are dead, God can breathe new life back into that. By the power of His Holy Spirit. And we'd be open and ready and willing to have Him bring those dry bones back to life. We have to receive it. We have to be open to it. So for us, as I think about kind of the so what question, you know, if our works are closer to dead than alive, you don't want to paint a picture of hope. Maybe this week you need to spend some time in prayer with the Lord, reading, reading His Word about, Lord, reignite your compassion. Reignite my heart, Lord. Even if our love for others, as Jesus says, has gone cold, Spend some time in prayer and conversation asking the Lord to reignite. Reignite your love for the person in need. Reignite my love or your love for the person I see standing on the corner of God. Give me greater depths of compassion. Give me your heart, Lord. You know, God can bring all things back to life. And I believe He can breathe life back into our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thankfully, death is not the end of the story. God, I'm convicted this morning. Not only of opportunities I have missed, but Lord, I, I ask that you would breathe new life into our hearts. If our hearts have gone cold, Lord, that you would give us greater depths of compassion, love for those that need to hear about your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we can't meet every need that we see, Lord, but will we meet the needs as we can, Lord? We ask for supernatural experiences. We ask for opportunities to, uh, would you intersect our lives, God, with others that we can impact for you? Will we give, will we love, will we serve, will we sacrifice, God? And Lord, your, your word is clear that that faith without works is dead, God. And so, God, while that's the reality, we know that's not the end of the story. We need new life, God. Again, God, I just ask for hearts to be reignited, for love to be increased. And God, I ask for mighty things to be done, God. Again, give us divine moments, divine intersections of people that we can give and love and sacrifice to, but also tell about your Son, Jesus Christ, God. With the days and the moments and the time that we have left, God, will we use it for your glory? That's not about us. It's about bringing glory to your kingdom, God. Honor these words today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.